This is a Federal News Network podcast. If the Senate or the House, if or both, switch to Republican control come January, you can expect a different approach on government oversight. Joining me with some of the specifics you might be able to expect, the Senior Fellow in Governance Studies at Brookings, Molly Reynolds. Molly, good to have you back. Thanks for having me. And we don't predict elections around here, so we have no idea how this is going to come out. I guess the best anyone can guess is toss-up. But let's say one of the houses of Congress, one of the chambers, changes. You've written that agencies should expect some different scrutiny from different people on different vectors. Absolutely. So if we look back over kind of the long post-war history of Congress and the president, we see a lot of evidence that when the House or Senate is controlled by one party and the White House is controlled by the other party, we see more aggressive oversight of the executive branch. Um, So more investigations, more just trying to examine what the executive branch, the White House agencies are doing. And I think in the current environment, this is a place where it's pretty easy when the majority switches from one party to the other to turn the bus pretty quickly. So when we think about oversight as compared to legislating, um, when there's a shift in the majority and and the other party takes over control of the committees, they can really have a big effect on oversight priorities very quickly. Um, they can they can pivot from what the previous majority was doing in one Congress to a different set of issues and different focus areas in the new Congress um, that's really aimed at being more aggressive uh, towards the executive branch. And you mentioned legislation, and I guess it's fair to say that it's unlikely that even if the Republicans do flip the House and the Senate, that doesn't mean they would have all this legislative control because they wouldn't be likely to have the kinds of majorities present to be able to overcome vetoes. Absolutely. Um, So I think in, I don't predict elections either, but I think even in the kind of best scenarios for Republicans that um, folks who do predict elections have put forward, they would be likely to still have a pretty narrow majority, especially in the Senate, um, which is right now divided evenly at 50-50. And again, really not enough votes Um, in many cases, to overcome a filibuster, let alone overcome the threat of a veto uh, if if the um, House and Senate were to pass something that President Biden vetoed. Yeah, sounds like a blast. (laughs) What agencies do you think could feel the most stormy conditions? I'm guessing Homeland Security, because that's just a great proxy for so many of the arguments happening on Capitol Hill already. Sure. So I would expect Um, Absolutely. The Department of Homeland Security, particularly um, around um, issues related to immigration enforcement, would be a place where we would um, see a lot of aggressive oversight from um, from Republicans. I think some other places, other specific issues that Republicans have talked about wanting to be aggressive on include things related to uh, COVID policy. And, for example, um, if the Senate shifts to Republican control, there's been a lot of discussion um, of the fact that one of the possible new Republican chairman of the Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee is Rand Paul, who has obviously been quite outspoken on his desire to sort of investigate um, aspects of um, 
the administration's policy towards COVID. Um, I think we could also um, see on the um, foreign policy side a lot of aggressive effort to oversee the conduct of um, U.S. aid uh, to the Ukraine conflict, to the Ukrainians in that conflict. And then um, more generally, I also think we would expect um, Republicans, especially if they take control of the House, to engage in some investigations that are more targeted at kind of President Biden personally. So there's been lots of kind of foreshadowing of the possibility of an investigation of, say, Hunter Biden. And that's less about executive agencies. But again, if we think that there's kind of a fixed amount of effort that a chamber is going to devote to oversight, and some of that ends up being on uh, kind of the president personally and personal scandals, um, as opposed to um, actual executive branch operations. That also means that we we are losing um, Congress as it's sort of fulfilling one of its constitutional responsibilities, which is to provide a check on executive power. We're speaking with Molly Reynolds, Senior Fellow in Governance Studies at Brookings. And what about the Defense Department and the whole defense budget, that whole complex, contentious anyway, but even more now so since you mentioned Ukraine and there's the question of whether our supplies and stocks are sufficient for what might happen in the world, that tends to be a lot of oversight and back and forth too, doesn't it? Absolutely. And I, again, I would expect that in um, in a Republican-controlled House and or Senate, there would be um, a, a fair amount of oversight in the in the defense space. Kevin McCarthy, who's the current House minority leader, um, is the kind of presumptive um, favorite to be the Speaker of the House if Republicans do take control of the House, has made some comments suggesting that a condition of um, continued support um, for aid to Ukraine from congressional Republicans would be more aggressive oversight of that conflict. I think we could also expect to see perhaps um, some effort to look back at the withdrawal from Afghanistan, which uh, remains uh, a contentious topic for congressional Republicans in terms of the Biden administration's conduct there. Um, and again, just generally going forward, is there's so much um, activity in that space, um, and it is so closely identified with the administration that, uh, you know, a Congress where one or both houses is controlled by the other party would likely see a lot of low-hanging fruit there um, to, to try to look at. It sounds like the American people would get a big dose of stalemate peppered with a lot of nastiness. I think that's um, I think that's a, a fair expectation. You know, I think, uh, as I said before, uh, it's so much easier to shift priorities in the oversight space when a majority changes than it is to shift legislative priorities simply because of the math involved in trying to, to legislate under divided government that I do think a lot of um, Republicans' energy uh, will be spent on, um, on oversight activities in the new Congress. And just a quick question on that idea of impeachment. I think I heard on one of the cable networks the other day the Republicans, or some of them anyway, have articles of impeachment they would like to bring forward even now. They know what they want to do should they gain that majority. Impeachment seems to become a tool that has become something politicians more and more often use simply on a quick-draw McGraw basis, used quite often pretty much every administration now, if that should come to pass? Yeah, I think it's an, it's an interesting question about whether we'll see the Republicans, um, especially in the House, who have started to telegraph 
plans to um, uh, uh, bring impeachment votes to the floor in the House um, if they follow through on that threat. Uh, there are tools that individual members have to force at least a procedural vote um, related to impeachment. Leaders, even of the majority party, tend not to like those votes. They tend not to like things that kind of undermine their control of the floor, even if they are coming from members of their own party. So I'm, I'll be paying attention to that. But I think you're right that we have seen somewhat of a shift in uh, the way that um, impeachment is is used, especially in the House, and the, um, the idea that folks will um, bring votes related to impeachment, even if they know that the vote um, is uh, uh, either the vote itself is going to fail or even if it's a successful vote in the House, the overall impeachment um, process will be futile, that it won't bring, um, it won't actually bring about removal of the person in question. And I think that's just a reflection of the increasing kind of weaponization of all of Congress's legislative and procedural and investigative tools in pursuit of partisan political. Well, we'll know in a couple of days what's going to happen. With any luck, we'll have an idea on Wednesday morning. Molly Reynolds is Senior Fellow in Governance Studies at Brookings. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. We'll post this interview with a link to some of her recent writing on this topic at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Take the Federal Drive with you. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the section chief of office and policy for the FBI's deputy director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what does that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took pr- um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's it's catching when when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is 
historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. <laughs> sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I didn't I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and, you know, it was sort of a continuation of of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. He thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour. And you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. 
Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down. Sometimes you have to tone it up. And that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. Is I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, 
there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or healthcare, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha. And thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield. And this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.